Well, good morning, church. Grab your Bibles, open them up, if you would, please, to Isaiah 53. This is a special time of the year, isn't it? March Madness. <laughs> you thought I was going to say Palm Sunday. Whatever. No, seriously, it is, I guess it is Palm Sunday. It is. But in the back of my mind, I got that March Madness thing going on with college basketball. And because um, I, I think it's because I've watched powerhouse teams like the University of Duke, North Carolina, Michigan State, Kentucky, teams that I thought would be playing right now have exited and some of them didn't even get there, right? Instead, we have many teams that are unfamiliar to us. I mean, it's like, I don't, who's this, you know? Baylor. I grew up on the farm. I know what a Baylor is, right? How did they get in? Gonzaga? Isn't that a Muppet? Weren't they canceled? And we, we talked about that last week, I think. I don't know. It's sort of confusing to me. But I think my favorite is Loyola Chicago. Unfortunately, they didn't make it yesterday. But uh, they have Sister Jean. Y'all know Sister Jean? She's 101 years old. She is a devout Catholic chaplain to this team. She, she prays for the team. She gives them spiritual advice. And last week, after, right before they played, she prayed for her team. Now, supposedly, this was her prayer. I'm going to read her prayer to you. Um, she said this. As we play the fighting Illini, we ask for special help to overcome this team and get a great win. We hope to score early and make our opponents nervous. We have a great, is it okay to laugh during a prayer? We have a great opportunity to convert rebounds as this team makes 50% of their layups and 30% of three-pointers. Our defense can take care of that. And then her prayer went on. And I thought, wow, a team prayer that include stats to help God. As if God needed the statistics. There's like, what? I didn't realize that was their layup percentage. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Defense. We better pick that one up and boom. Right. It's not how it works. Right. But I thought about this. It's like when it comes down to this, there's a lot of teams that are playing still in this tournament that were not predicted to be there. Right. Millions of people filled out brackets and millions of people have already torn up their brackets. It's called a bracket buster, right? It's like nobody guessed right. No one guessed right on this one. What's my point on all this? Well, I'm going to say this. There is one perfect bracket. There's one person who got it right. You know that is, don't you? Come on, we're in church. God. Yeah, it's always God, Jesus, or Bible if I'm going to look for an answer, right? You can be in Sunday school class and the teacher's like, it's brown, it's furry, it collects nuts, lives in a tree. And you're thinking, Jesus? No, it's a squirrel. But because you're in Sunday school, you felt you had to give the Jesus answer, right? Yeah. No, it's, it's, I know it's a cheesy question and answer, but it's God. See, God knew who would be in, who would be out. He knew what upsets would take place. He knew who would win before the game ever started, before the whistle ever was blown, before the clock ended. God knew, right? Because he's omniscient. Now, I want you to think about this. Let's translate it into the rest of life. I've just picked on one area, basketball, okay? But what about the rest of your life? God knows. He knows all of these things that we don't know and the things that we thought we should know. We, we don't, and he does. God even knew the price that would have to be paid for the forgiveness of our sins. Our sins, which we've talked about being a criminal action against the holy God, there's a price to be paid for freedom. 
And as if God is the judge and he's going to set bail or he's going to say what the price is for your freedom. But before he can say anything, Jesus steps in between you and God and says, I will pay that price. And as if God says, but do you know what the price is going to be? And Jesus says, I know. He knew it was going to cost his life. He already knew that. And now we are forgiven and we're free. Thanks to the incredible sacrifice of Jesus Christ, a sinless man and yet divine God. He gave his life so that we could have a relationship with the God of this universe. And now we are empowered. We are victorious. We are forgiven. We are free. And God knew all of that from the beginning. Well, it's bigger than basketball, isn't it? This goes all the way back to Genesis. Genesis Chapter 3, I want you to think about this. Adam and Eve are in the garden. They just, they've sinned. The serpent is there. God shows up and he basically confronts Adam and Eve and the serpent. And his discussion is this. This is what God says. He says, I will cause hostility between you, talking to the serpent, and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head. You will strike his heel. No doubt this is a prophecy of when Jesus Christ is going to defeat Satan many years down the road. God announced Satan would wound the Messiah. He'll strike his heel. The heel is that part within the serpent's reach. Jesus has taken on humanity. He has lowered himself now into Satan's domain, into Satan's territory where Satan could strike him. Charles Spurgeon said this, That bruised heel is painful enough. Behold, our Lord is in his human nature, sore bruised. He was betrayed, bound, accused, buffeted, scourged, and spit upon. He was nailed to the cross. He hung there in thirst and fever and darkness and desertion. See, but the Messiah would then crush Satan. Oh yeah, Satan struck the heel. But... Jesus would crush Satan with a mortal wound. He'll strike your head. As if God would say, I'm not going to wait for my plan to announce salvation down the road. I'm going to do it right here at the very beginning with Adam and Eve. I want you all to know I'm going to win in the end. I want you all to know I already know what's going to happen down the road. Because I am an omniscient God. I'm an all-powerful God. And he goes on then throughout Scripture to tell us how this is going to unfold. It's no surprise to us if we read this. It was no surprise to God because he had it planned out long ago. Turn in your Bibles. I think you're already there. Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. We'll start in verse 1. Let's read this together. Who has believed our message? To whom has the Lord revealed his powerful arm? My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, like a root in dry ground. There is nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance. Nothing to attract us to him, I've heard often a lot of uh, theologians say, everybody thought Jesus was like this incredible looking model. And scripture's like, he maybe wasn't that good looking. This has sort of given us a description of what Jesus was like. It goes on to say in verse 3 that he was despised, rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was depressed. We didn't care. Yet it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. We thought his troubles were a punishment from God, 
a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly. Yet he had never said a word. He was led like a lamb to slaughter. And as a sheep is silent before the shears, he did not open his mouth. Unjustly condemned, he was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants, that his life was cut short in midstream, but he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. He had done no wrong, never deceived anyone, but he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave, but it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief. Yet when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. He will enjoy a long life, and the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. When he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous, for he will bear all their sins. I will give him the honors of a victorious soldier because he exposed himself to death. He was counted among the rebels. He bore the sins of many and interceded for rebels. Before Jesus ever stepped foot onto this planet, Isaiah said, this is who's coming, the Messiah. This is what will happen to him. And as we read through that, you could sort of picture in your mind everything that happened to Jesus we saw right here. See, God knew Isaiah told us about it. Jesus, before it happened, Jesus even told us what was going to happen. Matthew 26, 1 to 2, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he said when he'd finished saying all these things, he looked at his disciples, he said to his disciples, as you know, Passover begins in two days, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Can you imagine his disciples like, whoa, we thought you were going to be like setting up this kingdom here and things are going great and people are praising you and you're going to be crucified? Jesus told him more about what would happen. Matthew 12, 40, he told him he's going to be buried for three days and rise again. Scripture says, for as Jonah was in the belly of a great fish for three days and three nights, so the son of man will be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. Mark chapter 9, verses 30 to 31 says this. Leaving that region, they traveled through Galilee. Jesus didn't want anyone to know he was there. He wanted to spend more time with the disciples and teach them. So he said to them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of his enemies. He'll be killed. Three days later, he'll rise from the dead. Not only did he say he was going to be buried for three days or he was going to be killed. He said, this is how I'm going to be killed. I'm going to be betrayed. Jesus kept giving more and more detail before anything ever happened. How can he do that? Because he is God. He knows. He knows all this. He knew all kinds of events, including things that would take place outside of his crucifixion and resurrection. One of my favorite passages, Mark chapter 14, verse 13. Jesus was entering Jerusalem and 
telling his disciples, hey, when you get there, this is how it's all going to go down. Listen very carefully. Jesus sent two of his disciples into Jerusalem with these instructions. As you go into the city, a man carrying a pitcher of water is going to meet you. Follow him. At the house he enters, say to the owner, the teacher asks, where's the guest room where I can eat the Passover meal with my disciples? He will take you upstairs to a large room that is already set up. That's where you should prepare our meal. So you get these, all these things that are unfolding here, right? So the two disciples go into the city. Now listen to this. And they found everything just as he had said. And they prepared the Passover meal there. It's like, hey, we're go- oh, there's a the guy with a pitcher of water. Hey, and, oh, we can go into your house? Okay, what, why are we here? Oh, and oh, we're going upstairs to a room. He set up a room. And look, it's already set up, just like he said. You know, click, click, check, 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 right? Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 6. Oh, here's another one. Jesus told his disciples. As Jesus and his disciples approached Jerusalem, they came into the town of Bethphage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives. Jesus, here we go, sent two of them on ahead. Go into the village over there, he told them. As soon as you enter, you'll see a young donkey tied there that no one's ever ridden. Untie it, bring it here. If anyone asks, what are you doing? Just say the Lord needs it and we will return it soon. The two disciples left. They found the colt standing in the street, tied outside the front door, check. And as they're untying it, some bystanders demanded, check. What are you doing untying that colt? They said, that's what Jesus told them, and they were permitted to take it. It's like he knows. Don't you love when you're reading through Scripture, like Jesus says something, and then it happens? God says, oh, I already knew that. Jesus says, I already knew that. The prophet's like, we told you so. He knows. Our God knows all of these things. Now, here comes the sort of the mm, scary, nerve-wracking part of this. God knows everything about you and me. He knows our sins. He knows our temptations. He knows our weak spots. He knows those things that we cover up that nobody else knows about. We can't manipulate him. We can't hide it from him. He knows. The beautiful thing about this is, is that we have one who understands all of that and sympathizes with us. Hebrews chapter 14, verses 4 to 5 says, So then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven... Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses. For he faced all of the same testings that we did, yet he did not sin. See, although God knows all things, and Jesus knows all things, he still went to the cross for me and for you. Isn't that amazing? It's like, you, you know what I'm going to do. You know what I've done. You know what this world's going to be like, and yet you are still going to send Jesus to die for me. And you know I'm going to act stupid at times. And you know I'm going to betray you at times, Jesus. You know I'm probably going to deny you at times. You know I'm probably going to embarrass you at times, Jesus. And Jesus is like, yeah, I know. I know all things. And I still love you. Think about this. He's washing the feet of all of the disciples. The one who's going to betray him. 
the one who's going to deny him. Oh, wait, all of them ran in the garden, yet he still washed their feet. He knew. As he washed his feet, he's probably saying, I'm washing his feet, and they're going to be running in a few hours. I'm washing this one. <laughs> he's going to deny me three times. But I'm still going to wash his feet. Isn't that amazing? He knows us, yet he still loves us. So understanding all these, all these truths that God knows all and he sees it all and yet he still gives up his son, Jesus Christ. Church, how do we respond to that? How do we respond? Well, that takes us to the passage that we always read on Palm Sunday. In your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 21. It's like, okay, Palm Sunday, what's that all about? This is going to give us a good picture of how the people responded and maybe gives us direction on how we should respond to the fact that God knows all and still loves us despite what we've done. So the time has come, and Jesus, knowing all things, enters Jerusalem for the final week on this planet. Famous passage, right? It's the Passover, one of the three great festivals that the Jews celebrated. To fully understand what's going on, we need to rewind back in time and understand when the Passover began. It says the children of Israel, as they were getting ready to leave Egypt, Moses has come, he's delivered them, right? God's rescued them. They're leaving Egypt. They celebrate the Passover. That's where it all began. After years of slavery, they're free. So they're celebrating their, their freedom from Egypt. They say, yes, we're free. But it was not just a celebration that they continue to celebrate what happened in the past. They were also celebrating a future rescue. That someday God would free them, not just from the, the political realm of whoever they were under, but that they would be free to be in the presence of God. It was a future celebration as well. So history shows us that these people, they left Egypt. They wandered in the wilderness. And then they entered the promised land. They established kings, and, and those kings failed. And, and then we have a, a kingdom then that was divided, and then these divided kingdoms fell prey to foreign nations. There was times that they lived in exile to the Syrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, and then the Romans. The Romans were the cruelest, weren't they? And that's where we are in this point in time in history, when all these people are under Roman rule, and they're celebrating the Passover from what was happened in Egypt, but they're looking forward to someday we're going to be free from the Romans. Someday we're going to be free to worship God in, in his presence, and they're all excited and fired up, Right? And then comes Jesus. Oh, for three years we've heard about this Jesus guy. Great teacher, miracle worker, brings people back from the dead, takes a handful of food and feeds thousands, walks on water. He even messes with the religious leaders and wins. We like this guy. He could be a king. Hmm. And they thought about that, right? Matthew chapter 21, verse 7. Let's pick up from there. It says, They brought the donkey and the colt to him. They threw their garments over the colt, and he sat on it. Most of the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Jesus was in the center of the procession, and all the people all around him were shouting, Praise God for the Son of David. Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise God in highest heaven. The entire city of Jerusalem was in an uproar as he entered. Who is this? The crowds replied that it is Jesus, 
prophet of Nazareth and Galilee. See, Jesus told his disciples, hey, uh, why don't you guys go get a donkey for me? It's like, whoa, time out, Jesus. You've never asked for a donkey. Not a donkey, not a camel, not a horse, not a chariot. You've never asked for anything. You always walk everywhere. Why do you need a donkey now? Could it be that he's fulfilling what a prophet years before said would happen? Zechariah 9.9, it says, O people of Zion, shout in triumph. O people of Jerusalem, hey, look, your king is coming to you. He's righteous, victorious, yet he's humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. Zechariah said, it's going to happen. You're going to see the king coming in on a donkey. And Jesus like, it's time. Guys, go give me a donkey. Remember, we read the passage earlier, everything added up. You're going to go find him here. He's going to be tied up. They're going to ask, like, yeah, hey, it all happened, right? It's Passover. People are celebrating their, their past deliverance. They're looking forward to a future deliverance. And Jesus rides over the Mount of Olives towards Jerusalem. And the people are all there looking like, oh, it's the king. We've heard about this, Jesus, and he's riding on a donkey. You guys, remember the prophets? Remember we're in the temple? Remember, remember we hear this, the scribes, how they talk and they read about Zechariah, what Zechariah said? This is it. This is it. It's happening. Here comes our popular, great teacher, miracle worker. It's our new king. I mean, think about this. If this was Christmas right now, and it's like, let's say it's Christmas Eve, and you walk outside and you look up in the air and you see a sleigh with reindeer and a man in a red suit with a jolly old laugh, ho, 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 you hear, you're like, oh. <laughs> it's the Easter Bunny. No. You're like, it's Santa. It's got to be. Look at the description. It's right there. It's Christmas. This is what's happening with these people. It's Passover. They're looking for their future king. Here comes Jesus on a donkey. Just, it's, it's the king. This is what's going on. What would you do if that was you in that spot, in that moment? Well, what do these people do? Let's read on in Scripture. It says in verse 8, most of the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him. Others cut branches from the trees, spread them on the road. Jesus was in the center of the procession. And the people all around were shouting, Praise God for the Son of David. Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise God in the highest heaven. See, the first thing they did is they took off their outer garment. Outer garment. Understand the closets of these people in these days. Not like our closets. Not like our wardrobes. They had an undergarment and an outer garment. And typically only one outer garment. And that outer garment, that cloak, was meaningful. You don't take it off and throw it on the ground for anybody. You don't take it off and give it to anybody unless they are highly respected. And they, that person means a lot to you. So for these people to take off their outer garment, they are recognizing Jesus for who he is, the King of Kings. And they're like, highly respected. Let's just roll that down, right? So that takes place. And then they start singing songs. Waving the palm branches, which is what you did when you celebrated a victory, which rewinds back earlier in the Jewish history. And then you've got the singing of songs, which comes from Psalm 118, which is a song that was a psalm that was sung by the Israelites. Hosanna, Hosanna, Lord save us, Lord save us now is what they were singing. So with the tossing of their garments, the, the waving of the palms and the singing of these songs... It's an expression of an allegiance to a king that's going to rescue them. That's how they responded. It's like, it's the king. 
Let's celebrate. Now, if you were to investigate other Gospels, though, you're going to find out there's a little bit more to the story that was not included here in Matthew. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Luke. Luke chapter 19. In Luke 19, we have the same story, but it's told from a different perspective. Verse 39 says this. When Jesus came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they'd seen. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory to the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Tell them to be quiet. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. See, Jesus is like, they're, they're, they're praising him. They're like the king and the Hosanna. And, and he's like, we're fulfilling prophecy, people. This is awesome. And the religious leader's like, tell them to stop. It's not good. You're not the king. And he's like, if I tell them to stop, the rocks are going to cry out. Right? So it's like, Jesus is like, it's okay. Let them. Let the people sing. But then, check out what happens in the next verse. Verse 41, we read, as he approached Jerusalem and he saw the city. He wept over it. He wept over it. When else in the Bible have you ever seen Jesus cry? One other place, right? When his good friend Lazarus was dead and buried, and he stood at the tomb and he wept. This is not a, a I feel so bad and there's a little tear. The, the word here, the Greek word here is used means to, to wail, to weep deeply. To shed tears, plural. Jesus is riding into this celebration. People are saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. And he's, he starts to weep deeply. He starts to wail. It's like, why is he crying? Isn't this what he wanted? Check out why he cries. Verse 42. He said, if you, even you, had only known on this day... What would bring you peace? But it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They'll dash you to the ground, you and your children, your walls. They'll not leave one stone to, on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. So the people weren't recognizing the time. They really didn't fully understand what was going on. There's a celebration going on. Jesus is crying and it's enough to say, you missed it. You missed it. Thanks for the celebration, but you're missing it. The garment, thank you. Action of commitment. I'm going to follow you, Jesus. I'm waving my branches because that's what we do when we, when we get victorious and we celebrate. And I'm going to sing to you. They claimed loyalty to Jesus, but it was on their terms. See, Jesus had his terms, and he's weeping because he knows that these people, they're worshiping him on their terms. I'm going to pray to you, God, and I've got some prayers, and you better answer them. God, I want our team to win. Hey, God, I need this job. See, we come to Jesus on our terms as if God doesn't already know what you need. He knows. Maybe you aren't supposed to win. Maybe you need to taste defeat. 
Maybe you need your humility or your pride crushed so that you can be a little bit more humble. Maybe you aren't supposed to have that job because God's got a different job for you. See, we come to Jesus sometimes on our terms, praying the way we think we should be, and instead he's like, come to me on my terms. We just saying, I surrender all, right? As we took communion, I surrender all. All? Define all. Finances? Attitudes? Social media? Relationships? All? Do we surrender all or do we go to Jesus on our terms? See, he's weeping because he knows sometimes we come to him on our terms. Worship team, would you come forward, please? Church, listen. Just as God knows how to fill out a bracket and get everyone correct, just as he can look into your life and see everything that's going on in my life and see everything going on, God knows that what I face every day, what I do every day, he already knows. He knows the price that was going to be paid so that we could be free and forgiven. He did it for you and me. Listen, church, Jesus wasn't caught in the garden because he wasn't smart enough. He wasn't arrested and put on trial unfairly. He wasn't beaten because the Romans were powerful. Because we know all it took was one breath from the mouth of Jesus. And he could have wiped out everybody. We know that when he was on the cross, he could have called on an army of angels and they would have brought him down and taken care of him. We, we know he has that kind of power. You see, it was, it was love that nailed him to the cross. See, we live in a very unpredictable world where we don't know everything. But see, we have a very predictable Savior who knows everything. We don't know when and how he will use his power, but his love is predictable. It's always there. His forgiveness is predictable. It's always there. His grace is predictable. It's always there. He is a faithful God. The question is, do you truly trust him as a loyal subject? See, that's the thing. He was worshiped as a king as he came riding in. That means if he's the king, we are his subjects. As his subjects, as ones who worship the king, as ones who worships the king, is it on your terms or his? Have you fully surrendered to him? Which person are you like in the crowd? When we sing these songs, we come here on Sunday to worship, is it on your terms or his? Are you hoping something good comes out of your life because you made it to church one out of ten times? Hey, I showed up, or hey, I did this. I'm doing a lot of good things in my life. God, you ought to bless me. It sounds like your terms. Do you sing songs and worship him because you've recognized he is the king? And he's done all this for us, and we need to be loyal to him. Church, here comes the king. Here comes the king. Let's be, let's be loyal subjects to him. Let's humble ourselves.
Let's be ready to admit that our way isn't usually the best way. Let's admit that. Would you stand, please? This week, as we prepare for Easter and all that he's done for us, you know, I often sit there and think, which is the better holiday, Christmas or Easter? You know, and it's like, I love Christmas. You guys know that. And Easter, yeah, it's good, but there's just not that festive feel. You know why? Because it's a very humbling time. It's a very sobering time. Because we think about our focus is really on what he did. It's like, wow. Wow. But here's the thing. If we don't have Easter, our faith is nothing. We're like everybody else out there. We serve a risen Savior. Next week, when we celebrate that, I'm looking forward to it. I really am. And I hope you are too. But between now and then, continue to ask the tough questions and remember what he's done for you and I. It makes the celebration so much greater. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what an amazing God you are. Thank you, Lord, for who you are, what you've done. I thank you, God, that you know all things from something as simple as a bracket all the way to the deep, darkest spots of my heart, you know. You know what the future holds for us. Pandemic was never a surprise to you. Seniors that are in this room were wondering, what am I going to do next year? You already know all these things. You know what choices we're going to make today and tomorrow. You know all things. And you know that despite our sin, you're still going to send your son to save us because you love us. God, thank you for your love. God, may we as your loyal subjects worship you as a king needs to be worshiped. We want to come to you on your terms. Nobody ever goes to you as a king and tells you how to rule. You are king. God, teach us how to follow. We love you, Lord. In thy name we pray. Amen.